It is probably unnecessary of me to remind you that your little midterm exercise is due uh, tomorrow. And I hope you've all been working uh, away uh, at that. Because you have been working away uh, at that. And uh, because we have a week of break uh, coming up, the readings over the period will be fairly relaxed. We're going to continue through this fragment B or 3. But those of you who follow the course with attention will notice that there is one peculiarity. That is to say that I'm lecturing on the Sumner's Tale before lecturing on the Friar's Tale. These three come uh, together. Uh, the reason for this really is the convenience of the way that the Sumner's Tale so very clearly recapitulates a number of the themes uh, in the Wife of Baths, uh, in, in the Wife of Baths uh, prologue and tale. Now, I try to suggest that the principal idea, it seems to me, that Chaucer is getting at here, has to do with this idea of uh, surface and substance, the letter and the spirit, what the guy said, and what he really meant. And we see that this is not simply a literary attitude in a narrow sense. That is to say, what Chaucer has in mind when he talks about letter and spirit is not simply some kind of literary interpretation, but rather these are large moral categories. Now, the, they come from the Bible, naturally. We would expect that with the uh, wife of Bath. The vocabulary... Uh, the implicit vocabulary on which Chaucer is depending here is Pauline. That is to say, it comes from St. Paul in the epistles of the New Testament. And St. Paul is a great one for presenting binaries. One of his chief ones is simply old and new. He thinks in the first place uh, of Christianity as being a kind of new and improved version of the covenant made uh, with uh, Abraham. Oldness, for him, is not simply a chronological category, but rather a moral category. One of the sources for the wife of Bath, the character called the wife of Bath, is an old woman in the Romance of the Rose, who there has simply the allegorical name of La Vie, the old woman. Now, Chaucer takes that idea and gives it a local habitation and a name. But you can see that oldness there, although it is presented as a theme in the chronological sense, that she's getting old and she wishes she was still young. She tells a story about an old woman who becomes a young woman and everything works out happily ever after. It's pretty clear that that oldness is also a moral category. When St. Paul talks about it, he means, when he talks about the old man, he means carnal human nature in need of redemption. So there's something rather ironic in every sense about the interruption of the partner. We looked at it last time. The partner butts in. Uh, they had a noble preacher in this talk. Teach us younger men of your practice. Well, I don't know what the age of the partner is, 
but uh, morally speaking, he's about a thousand years old. And he draws attention to this old, new uh, in that way. But St. Paul also <coughs> makes a parallel between the spirit and the letter uh, or the flesh and the spirit that is exactly parallel to the old and the new. That is to say, what is old is literal, it is carnal, what is new is spiritual, uh, figurative. And these are the ideas I think that Saucer is, uh, is chiefly working with there. Now, if you believe me, I said in my last lecture that it, is, it seems probable that the evidence suggests that Chaucer revised his already brilliant vision of the wife of Bath to include in addition to her marital autobiography with its rich themes of marriage and the maestri that comes in marriage, that he introduced that theme of Christian perfection. That is, various grades of moral perfection. That's what the first part of the Wife of Bath prologue is all about. And there, Nat, it is indeed linked to uh, human sexuality. But this is one of the reasons, I think, that for the rest of this fragment, three, he is dealing with explicitly religious characters. Now, one of the ideas I want to introduce you to here is the idea of a diptych, and I've drawn a diptych, a very poor diptych, uh, up on the board. This is a term from art history. You've probably seen one in an art museum. A diptych is an artistic creation in which you have two painted panels that are joined by hinges, and there is usually some very obvious relationship between what you have on the one side and what you have on the other. For example, there's a very famous one that shows St. Francis with St. Clair. St. Francis, the head of the male Franciscans. St. Clair, the head of the female Franciscans. But Chaucer is doing this now <coughs> thematically. He is interested in the two great engines of pilgrimage, to be sure, but really, in a sense, the two great engines of Christian life in the Middle Ages. This is putting it a little bit crudely, but it's a sort of carrot and stick thing. That is, it is the fear of hell on the one hand, it is the hope of heaven on the other. One of the famous lines from the Psalms is that uh, uh, mercy and truth have joined together uh, what we have here in this particular diptych of the Friar's Tale and the Sumner's Tale is a delineation, on the one hand, of the theme of God's justice, and on the other hand, the theme of God's mercy. And I'll try to explain how this works in just a moment. But in order to know what that's about, we need to know what a Friar is and what a Sumner is. The Sumner was... A, an official in the ecclesiastical court, in an ecclesiastical court. In the Middle Ages, a great deal of religious law was what we would today call positive or secular law. There are faint <laughs> memories of this 
in a few of the blue laws that still exist in various places in the United States. There are places where you can't get a drink on Sunday. There are still some counties in the South that are absolutely dry. There's a place in Kansas where you can't buy cigarettes and stuff like this. These are memorials of a time when it was much more frequent in this country where a particular vision of public morality became encoded in the civil uh, law. So now in the middle, I think, unless they've uh, repealed this, adultery is still a crime in the state of New York. The prosecutors are busy (laughs) with other things, I think, and probably are not taking this down. But uh, that was definitely a a crime. Well, in the the Middle Ages, all sorts of things of that kind were crimes for which you could be called before an ecclesiastical court. And a sumner was the person who did that. Now, from the description of the sumner, both in the general prologue (laughs) and at the beginning here, of, uh, and, and as, you, as we run into him uh, in, his, uh, in his own tale, we can see that he is deeply corrupt, you know, and so forth. But nonetheless, the theory of the Sumner is that he's summoning somebody to God's uh, justice. Now, what is God's mercy? The chief manifestation of God's mercy in medieval religious life is the sacrament of penance. It was often said that the church was the extension of the incarnation. Now, what they meant by that was that the church exists in time to carry on the mission that Jesus carried out when he was on earth. And the church will keep on doing that until the second coming. Well, what was that mission? That mission is largely one of penance. I mean, he's, he is the person who announces Jesus is John the Baptist. Uh, repent ye, make way a highway in the in the desert, all, the, all this kind of stuff. And Jesus is constantly going around forgiving people, like the woman taken in adultery, which we have to remember when we see Allison with her convenient pile of stones uh, right next to uh, right next to the bedstead. Now, I do have to say quite a bit. I do have to say certain uh, things about uh, penance here, because a lot of the Sumner's tale is very tightly located in local uh, controversies. The sacrament of penance, that is to say, of auricular confession, still current in Catholicism, where a penitent goes privately to a priest, makes a confession of sin, is absolved in the name of, of, of Christ. This is a rather late development in Christian history. And in fact, it only entered the uh, scene in 1215 at the time of the Fourth Lateran Council. The Fourth Lateran Council, called by the great Pope Innocent III, tried to reform the church in all sorts of ways. And this was one of them. And it issued a constitution, as they were called, that is to say a, a law or an edict, known by, as all of them, as they always are, known by its, the opening words of it in Latin, omnis utriusque sexi. That means everyone of both sexes must go to their own priest uh, once a year to remain in communion with the church. Now, ordinarily that took place, uh, ordinarily that took place at uh, Easter time. Now, the same Lateran Council that in, started 
the confession business, so to speak, uh, instituted a new bunch of religious orders, the orders of friars. Now, I've listed them for you. You remember when the, um, the, the friar is described in the general prologue as being a really sweet talker. It says, in all the orders for was none that, that could so much of uh, uh, dalliance and fair langage. He was the best talker in all the four orders. Well, what were these four uh, orders? <coughs> they were the Order of St. Francis, called the Franciscans, or the Order of Friars Minor, the Order of the Dominicans, also called the Order of Preachers. These two were the really big, cutting-edge groups within the church in the 13th century. Most of the famous theologians that you will have heard of before you ever took this course, Albertus Magnus or Thomas Aquinas, were friars in the Dominican order. The Dominican order was a very sort of intellectual uh, group. The Franciscans, uh, on the other hand, were a very down-to-earth kind of group. And their founder, uh, Francis of Assisi, had focused on two ideas that he found in the scriptures. One of the really interesting things about religious history, really at any period, but certainly in the Middle Ages, is that every change that comes in the history of the church comes about from a different reading of the Bible, really. You know? And the things that he focused on, that Francis of Assisi focused on, were poverty, the absolute poverty of Christ, that he, Christ had owned no property, uh, this was his interpretation of, uh, the, uh, of the Gospels. And secondarily, the extraordinary need for penance, that everybody needed to be living constantly uh, in, a, uh, in a penitential state. The Franciscan rule, if you pick it up and read it, is made up of a pastiche of uh, biblical passages, most of which have to do with those moments at which Jesus is actually commissioning his uh, disciples. And the text that I've given you on the left-hand side uh, from Luke 10 is one of the uh, longer uh, of uh, the longer of these. All right, so you now have a constitution, omnis utriusque sexus. Everyone of both sexes must go to their, uh, to their uh, parish, uh, their own priest once a year for uh, confession, and you now have a new group within the church who are not parish priests, who are wandering around, they're friars, they're moving all over the place, itinerant preachers, who also became extremely adept at hearing confessions. One of the strange things about this period of medieval literature is the emergence of the important genre of <coughs> confession manuals. Now, this might seem like a kind of natural, <laughs> that you could just uh, do it naturally, but they didn't think you could in the Middle Ages. If you were going to be a uh, confessor, you had to have a lot of specialized knowledge about human nature and so on. And so you get these enormous compilations of books that were for, to be used by priests in the hearing of confessions and in the assignment of penances and uh, so on. Now, uh, a lot of people see in this movement, movement in literature, incidentally, the beginning of an emergence of character subjectivity. That is, we really begin to focus on you. 
What were you doing when you stuck beans up your nose? Why did you do it? What was the particular thrust of this? This, these are, this is one of the things that you're going to find in these confession manuals. And the friars were experts at this. Okay, now, to get into the Sumner's Tale, you've got to put yourself in the condition of some rube out in some godforsaken village somewhere in England, and uh, you've been putting beans up your nose again, and Easter is coming, and if you're going to stay in communion with the church, you've got to go to confession. And you have the following choices. You can go to your parish priest, who every year for the last 17 years has heard you say that you've been sticking beans up your nose, and has told you how terrible that is, and you're going to go to hell in a hay wagon if you don't quit sticking beans up your nose. Or, now here comes riding in on a horse in a Franciscan garb, some guy who is a really fantastic confessor. Uh, and, according to our, our uh, text, uh, he says he is easy of response, that he, he, doesn't, he doesn't make too much of a big deal about this. You'll never see him again. You just come in, it's a kind of like a visiting doctor. Which one of these people would you think you'd like to go to? You know, well, a lot of people were choosing the latter. So, uh, the parish priests say, wait a minute. This function of confession belongs only to us. Can't you read omnis utriusque saxus? Everyone of both sexes must go to their own parish priest. And what did the friars say? I said, oh, you haven't read that very carefully, have you? What does it say? It says, omnis utriusque sexus. Everyone of both sexes. That is, all hermaphrodites must go to confession <laughs> to their own parish priest. The rest of us, the rest of them, can come and make their confession to uh, us. Okay. Now, you might describe that, might you not, as a very cruel victory of the letter over the spirit. All right. The friars also, the Franciscan friars, were told in their rule that they should never touch money. This is a big thing in our, in our story, as you'll see in a minute. Uh, they should never t- touch money. How do you get around that? Maybe you've been in a church where when they take up the collection, they have a kind of uh, plate on the end of a stick. That was invented by the friars. They called it the friar's hand. You know, because you could sort of hand this thing around. Say, I never touch money, St. Francis. Don't you see? I'm just pulling it. Another cruel victory of literalism over the spirit, the religious spirit of the thing. Now, the reason I mention these things is because this, of course, is exactly the theme that you're going to see developed both in the Sumner's Tale and in the Friar's Tale. That is, the distance between the, uh, the, distance between the uh, letter and the spirit. <clears throat> now, this is, again, one of Chaucer's foulest tales. I'm going to do what I best to try to show that it's one of his most profoundly religious uh, uh, tales. But it seems a little hard to do that with regard to the Sumner's prologue. Sumner's prologue has been described as the foulest bit of uh, in all of Chaucer. And boy, do I learn things in giving these lectures when I say things. I learn who has actually read the text. And who hasn't? Because it's clear that nobody here has read the Sumner's prologue, or you would know what I'm talking about. So I guess I better tell you what happens in the Sumner's uh, prologue. Sumner says, I'm going to tell you about this friar uh, who had a vision, and he was carried down to hell. It's one of these good news, bad news things. He was carried down to hell. That's the bad news. What's the good news? The good news is that he looks around, and 
there aren't any other friars there. He's the only one there. So he says, well, you know, I sort of messed up, but at least there aren't any other friars here. And one of the demons says, no other friars? Eh? Come here. And he leads him around to the rear end of Satan. And it says at line 1697, uh, he says uh, that uh, the devil's heirs, they're going to drive a 20,000 friars in a room. 20,000 friars come out of the anal cavity of Satan. Now, that's quite a lot of friars. It's probably quite a lot of anal cavity. Uh, but it really is a gross, gross joke. But wait a minute. Maybe you remember now that at the end of the Wife of Bass prologue, before she actually gets into her tale, Chaucer has set it up in such a manner that there's a little argument between the friar and the sumner. And the, the friar butts in and says, Boy, you've been a noble preacher in this costume. Oh, lady, you really know how to preach a sermon. And uh, he says, oh, shut up. Somebody says, you shut up. He says, a friar is like a fly. You'll find one in every dish. You know, put out a dish of food and flies come around it, and so do friars. And H. Mater, everybody else's business. Then what about at the beginning of the Wife of Bath's tale? Remember? She says, in the good old days of King Arthur, when there weren't all these damn friars that are crawling around as thick as motives in the son of Ama. You've been on a, you know, a dusty road, a dirt road in the summer, and a car comes by, and 10,000 motes of dust rise. That's how many friars there are. So you have this picture of, of uh, hundreds and thousands of friars kind of milling about. And here you get the harvest of it, you know, and we find out where the friars really are. Well, except that everybody in Chaucer's audience knew what the source of this was. And it was an icon, an image called the Mater Misericordia, the Mother of Mercy. And it works just the other way around. A friar goes up to heaven. That's the good news. The bad news is he doesn't see any other friars there. He says, oh, I'm glad I made it. But, gee, I'm sorry none of my brethren did. And St. Peter says, oh, you, you, you wonderful, simple man. Let me introduce you to the Virgin Mary. So he brings over to the Virgin Mary. And she's standing there. You've probably seen the painting by Piero della Francesca. She's called the Virgin with the Mantle as well. So it's this great big cloak that she pulls around her like, like this. And she says, all oh, the friars are so dear to me that I want to have them close to me as possible. And she opens her cloak and there's thousands of friars and they're praying against the, uh, against the uh, Virgin Mary. Now these are very coarse images in a way, uh, but they're founded uh, in an imagery that uh, represents some of the highest religious ideals uh, <coughs> of, the, of the Middle Ages. So let's get into the uh, Sumner's Tale where you're going to meet uh, the greatest friar uh, in, uh, in history. And this friar is going around and he is preaching trentles. A trentle was a special package of 30 masses, a kind of bargain basement sort of thing. You know? uh, instead of paying money, individual, you know, buying one mass at a time for the soul of your loved ones, sign up for 30, it's only at half price, you get double, you know. This is the commercial attitude that you see towards spiritual stuff, really, in both of these, uh, both of these uh, stories. 
And he says, Trentles, deliver fro penance your friend as soulas, as well as old as young. Yea, when they've been hastily sung, not for the whole to praise the jolly and gay, he's saying if not, but oh mass in a day, not these local priests. They're no good. They can only do one mass a day, and we can do 30 at a time. Now, the way the actual Protestant Reformation began, as some of you will remember, I mean, there's obviously there's a very, very deep movement. I mean, but the specific incident that made uh, Martin Luther go postal was that there was a pardoner, who's very much like a Sumner, who was going around with a tin pot rattling coins in it and said, when you hear the coin rattle in the pot, then you know that the soul of your loved one has leapt out of purgatory. This very, very crude, in other words, connection between what is supposed to be spiritual and what is obviously just uh, corrupt, uh, corrupt uh, uh, simony. Well, this is the way that he's uh, talking. And he goes along and he has a guy who goes with him uh, behind him and he's carrying a big bag. And they go from house to house, and at each house he knocks and uh, says, you know, uh, do you have anything for us poor friars? We're mendicants. Now, the reason they're called mendicants is because they did not own any property. The theory was they were supposed to live simply by the charity of people that they ran into. Now, if you want to uh, read the text that sets up the theory of this, one good place is in the 10th chapter the tenth chapter of almost anything. <laughs> that is, in all three in, in three of the four Gospels, in the tenth chapter, you get this commissioning of the uh, disciples. And what does Jesus say? He says, go two by two. Take nothing with you for the journey. Neither scrip, that's a bag, neither a bag or a staff. Okay, now look at our, uh, look at our friar. Uh, what is he doing? He, he goes with a, a guy who has a bag, right? He, he went his way, no longer would he uh, rest, with scrip and tipid staff. He took it here uh, in every hoot began to poke in Priya. Now, this is another one of these examples where a very realistic scene that you're getting is really coming to you in biblical language. I love that idea of the tipid staff. That is, it's a really fancy walking stick. It has some horn on the end of it. You know, deer antler. When I was a kid, my grandfather uh, had a carving set that I thought was really cool. It had sort of uh, deer antler on it or something. That's the sort of thing that he that uh, that this guy has. Why is that? That's because Chaucer really wants you to think about the realia of the physical thing. But <laughs> you don't want to forget the symbolic meaning of it. The reason the friar does everything he does is because it's exactly what Jesus tells him not to do. Take with you neither script nor staff. Well, uh, his, his friend has a, uh, a little tablet in which he writes down the names of people who donate uh, things. And then uh, the moment they go on to the next house, he says, he just erases the name, you know, makes a, a new one. And at that point, the Sumner gets mad. Now look, I mean, the friar gets mad. Look what the Sumner has said. The Sumner has said, there was this scumball uh, friar. He was a murderer. He was a major burglar. He was a baby raper. He was, and he got a traffic ticket. And 
At this point, when you get to the traffic ticket part, the friar bursts in. No, he says, that is a lie. Don't you see how funny <laughs> that is? And then you have, the, uh, you have a scene that you're going to see repeated so many times where Harry Bailey, most involved in sin, boy, if ever there's a layman who needs some ministration from these church people, he has to say, pace for Christus mater there. Please, you know, calm down, you churchmen, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, be, be good. <clears throat> Paste code our, our host for Christus, a uh, motor there. So three V code summoner show he shall. Well, he goes from house to house doing this begging, and he comes to the house of somebody named John, who is a rich guy. Now, one of the claims that the anti-friar camp made, probably legitimately, was that these friars, who's supposed to love poverty so much, sure did love to hang out with rich people. And they became the confessors for most of the kings in, 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 in Europe. And so, Incidentally, we're dealing here with a, a literary topic, not with social reality. There were some wonderful friars, obviously. <laughs> and I just said, you know, most of the great theologians of the era were friars. But what we're dealing with here is a literary caricature of everything bad that has ever been said about any friar who ever lived, and it all joins uh, in uh, this guy. This, I, this is where I got my start in medieval studies, when I was about your age. I read about, I didn't know what a friar was, I didn't know the difference between a friar and a canon and a priest and all these other people who uh, arrived in Charleston. I, I opened up the book, The Old Riverside, before this one, and it said, this is the portrait of a typical 14th century English friar. Well, look, I'd been to the Sulphur Springs Fair twice, and I knew that if this was a typical 14th century English friar, they would have run all the suckers out of town on a rail. I took 20 years out of my life to become the world's greatest literary expert on friars. <laughs> I have written two books about fraternal literature. I'm the only non-Roman Catholic on the... Uh, <laughs> on the board of the directors of the Franciscan Institute. And it was a, it was a bit of a, it was a bit of a, you know, a, a, a deviation, but I, I learned a lot, I learned a lot about friars. Well, uh, this friar is a caricature. Everything bad that has ever been said about any friar has been said about him. And one of the things is that he hangs out with rich people. So he comes to this rich guy's house, and the rich guy is sick. Now, what does Jesus say? Heal the sick, raise the dead, feed the hungry, all this stuff. He also said, eat what is put before you, right? You don't go in and you, you order the triple hamburger or anything like this. You just sit down and you take what you... Well, this is one of the most brilliant scenes in world literature, as far as I can see. Uh, he comes in at the top of page 130. Uh, he says, boy, he says, Thomas, Tomas, the guy's name, pardon me. He says, Tomas, God yields yo." Uh, so oft to be upon this bench far and full, full well, and here he have eaten many a merry meal. I've had a great time at this table, he said, and then with this next lap, line, and fro the bench, he drove away the cat. Look <laughs> <laughs> like this. <laughs> That's a great line. Uh, and lay to do his potent and his hat. So he lays down his potent, which is this big stick, and uh, he sits there and he says, Oh, I've been preaching, you know, I'm just a humble preacher. But uh, glozing is a glorious thing, Sarah Payne. 
you know, the spiritual interpretation of the scriptures, that's where it's all about. These local priests, they don't know anything about it. Glozing is a glorious thing, sir. And then he says, you have no text of it, as he supposed, but he shall fiend it in a manner glozed. I don't have any literal text, but the allegorical meaning of this non-existent text is the following. Uh, if you may have heard in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus says, blessed be the poor and spirit being, says, uh, what that actually means is me. Uh, that is us. Uh, you know, he's talking about us. And so forth. All the gospel, may ye say. What a, the, the entire gospel is talking about how great friars are. Well, John, the, Thomas, the guy in bed, is sick. Now, what's wrong with him? He's old. And he's angry. And he's one of these people that St. Paul talks about when he says, we were by nature the children of wrath. And if ever there was somebody who needs some ministration from the church, it's this angry old man who's angry as a pissimir, which is a stinging ant. Uh, but what kind of ministration uh, does uh, he, he get? Well, notice that a woman appears out of nowhere. This is what's almost surreal. Uh, the wife of the house comes in. Now, what St. Francis says is when you... <laughs> Uh, if you're in the presence of the woman, make sure that you keep your feet, your eyes down at your feet. You know, you know we don't want you uh, having any kind of wrong thought. What does he do? He grabs her and gives her a big kiss. He's a very modern uh, clerical uh, uh, type. And he says, boy, he says, you know, I saw some pretty good looking women in church today, but none of them were, you know, up to your standards. And she goes, oh, shaw, shaw. It's a wonderful kind of scene. Um, and then he says, would you like something to eat? Uh, oh, he says, oh, now je vous dis sans doute. Gives a little bit of French. He says, oh, yeah, well, you know, the Bible says, uh, eat what's put before you. Having that of a capon, but the liver, if I only have a capon's uh, liver, and of your soft of bread, nat but a shiver, and after that, a roasted pig's head. But oh, I will, for no base for me, we're dead. Yeah, please don't go kill a pig just for me. I mean, it is really outrageous. Now, he makes the mistake of asking Thomas how he's doing. You know, and that's not really very good because he's not doing well at all. He's very, very sick and he has spent a great deal of money, you know, on the prayer factory at the, at the friary. Uh, and uh, he says, boy, it's doing me no good. He says, well, don't you know you're a member of our confraternity? I've got, a, I got the piece of paper right here that uh, shows it. He says, I don't feel anything from this. He says, oh, you've been, I've been giving this group of friars five bucks and that group of friars ten bucks. When the friar hears that, he says, oh, I now understand what your problem is. Oh, united we stand, but divided we fall. Anybody can tear up the uh, New York phone book if you do it one page at a time. What you need to do is take all your money and put it with the most powerful group of friars that you can find. And fortunately, I happen to represent that group. Now, the venality and the hypocrisy of the friar is almost beyond belief. But the wife says that he needs to go to confession. Uh, and it sounds to me like he does need to go to confession. He's really angry and so, so forth and so on. It turns out later on he actually has been at confession. So the friar says, oh, angry, eh? Well, I better give you a sermon on anger. And he does. And it's one of the most dynamite sermons on anger 
you will ever read. The friars were really great preachers. One of the orders was called the Order of Preachers, the uh, Dominicans. And they had all these books that taught them how to preach and that had marvelous little anecdotes, such as the sardine can of life and that kind of thing, that they could bring into their uh, sermons. Uh, a scholar, if you look in the back of your book at the notes, a scholar has shown that the particular book that is being used by this friar is the communiloquium of an English friar named John of Wales, who went out and ransacked classical literature in order to bring forward stories that you could use in sermons. So this is a terrific sermon, uh, but what kind of an application does it get is the question that you need to ask. He says, wrath is an awful thing, and I can give you uh, you know, I, I can give you uh, an example, drinking, that's really uh, terrible. It says, uh, there was this uh, king who was very wrathful and an awful drunkard. And he had a virtuous steward who said to him, King, you ought not to behave this way. When you get in one of these moods, it befuddles your judgment. Befuddles my judgment, does it? He says, go bring me your son. So they bring the son in. Tie him to that post. Bring me a bow and arrow. And he takes it. He puts an arrow right through the kid's heart. Says, now, did that befuddle my judgment? Now, I think you get the moral point of the story that I just told you. How does the friar interpret this story? He says, this has a deep moral meaning. The meaning of the story is, you can correct a poor man, but be damn careful what you say in the presence of a rich man. Now, if a chicken and a half can lay an egg and a half in a day and a half, how many um, monkeys with a wooden leg will it take to kick the seeds out of a dill pickle? This is the situation that you've got with his interpretation of that, uh, of that, particular, uh, of that particular tale. Uh, anyway, he says, you really ought to take all your money and put it in one place. Uh, because, he says, what is a farthing worth parted in twelve? Now, the word farthing, pronounced in Middle English, farting, is one-fourth of a penny. It means a farthing, okay? So there's this sick guy who's lying in bed, getting more and more angry with the friar, and the friar says to him, idea, so the light bulb uh, goes on in his, uh, in his head. He then says uh, to the man, listen, I want, you to, I want to hear your confession. Now, ordinarily, the way this worked in the Middle Ages was that the penitent knelt down by the side of the priest, humbly making his confession. Right? Now, the scene you have here is the rich, sick guy is in bed, and the friar kneels down by his bed and says, now make your confession. And the friar says, well, you know, I did it 25 minutes ago, down to my local parish priest. Yift me then of the gold. Like, okay, if I can't have one from column A, give me something from column B. That's one of the great lines. Yift me then of the gold. In other words, his real interest uh, is in money. And so the sick guy says, yeah, you really want a, you want a gift. Now, Chaucer Scholarship is coming up to speed now, but when I first started out, they wouldn't talk about this stuff very frankly. What you had in the Miller's tale uh, was called the misdirected kiss. And what you had in this tale was called the unexpected gift. 
Well, it was unexpected when I first started out, but after 20 years of studying friars and their literature, there's nothing more expected than what happens to this friar. St. Francis said, in so many words in his rule, that a friar ought as willingly reach out his hand to take a gold coin as he would reach out to take up a handful of scarecoos using a Latin term for a word that I think you can easily figure out. And there's a story in the early Franciscan literature about some well-meaning woman, but who didn't understand evangelical poverty. She comes down to the little church of the Portiuncula, and she puts these gold coins on the altar. And Francis freaks at this, and throws those out the window, and fire throws them out the window. And then they all go over and look out the window. And, of course, there's a road going by outside, Medieval roads were traversed by horses, cattle of all sorts. There was a big pile of animal staircase right in the middle of the road, and the coins had fallen right on top of them. And St. Francis, this image of filthy lucre is, is biblical. Okay, so anyway, he says, okay, he says well, I, okay, I will give you a gift, but you have to promise on a stack of Bibles, you've got to promise on a stack of Bibles that you will divide whatever I give you, absolutely evenly with your brethren. And he manages to work in the fact that there are 13 people in a convent. Now remember dividing the the farthing among uh, 12. And so he says, okay, uh, I, I promise. He says, I absolutely promise I will, uh, I will uh, do that. Uh, well, in that case, at line 2140, now then put in thine hand, dune be me back, said this man, and grope a well behinda, behind me buttock, there shalt thou fiend, a thing that I have hid in privite, remember old privite? Well, he's got his piggy bank down with his privite. <laughs> like, like you got to be a pretty stupid friar, you know, to get a false false. So, He's, uh, he's quite excited uh, about this. Ah, thought this prayer. That shall go with me. And Dooney's hand a launcheth to the cliff uh, in hope before the fiend of there a yifta. And when this sick man felt this prayer a boot his tool grope a there and there, amid his hand, hey, let the prayer a fart. There is no capital drawing in a cart that meet have let a fart. I'll switch it soon. <laughs> atomic fart. And now, the friar, who ten minutes ago was delivering a sermon on what? On the evils of wrath, of anger. Man, he is so angry that you can't, I mean, he just goes fuming and, and so on. And you can understand why, I think, can't you? He's been, uh, he's been rather uh, insulted. And he rushes down... <coughs> Uh, to the house of a really rich guy, the lord of the manor, and he comes in, and he is fuming. The man says, what, what's the matter? Calm down, my, my dear brother. He says, says, oh, I've had this awful, awful experience today. He says, well, come on. It couldn't be all that bad. Tell us about it. He says, oh, it's worse than you can think. And all of a sudden, he does exactly the same thing that he did in the Miller's Tale. He takes a good, dirty joke, and he makes it high comedy. I mean, the... You know, the, the part where the gift ought to be, that's a pretty good dirty joke. But you discover, only when he's down talking to the rich man, what it is that he's really angry about. That is, he says, this churl gave me a 
problem in gas dynamics that nobody can solve. How can you divide a fart absolutely equally in 12 parts? Now, how literal-minded can you possibly be? What do you think that sick old Thomas meant when he gave him this particular unexpected gift? He meant something like, I fart in your general direction, or a fart on all friars, <laughs> you know, or as one of the characters in Tom Jones says, you know, common charity, a fart. But what he thinks has happened to him is that he has agreed, he promised in advance that he would absolutely divide this fort uh, equally in all parts. So it's no wonder that everybody kind of sits around and goes, my God, you know, how literal-minded uh, can you possibly be? Well, there's a very smart undergraduate type there. There always is in these, uh, in these uh, stories. And he says, I've got this great idea. Uh, he says, uh, bring me a cartwheel. Cartwheel has 12 spokes, right? Well, we've got to go along with it for the sake of the, the, uh, of the uh, story. He says, bring me a cartwheel. Of course, it doesn't work at all if you stop to think about it. Cartwheel, the spokes are not going to be hollow. They're going to be solid. But anyway, cartwheel has a hub and it has these 12 spokes. He says, bring me the 12 brethren. There's 13 men in a, in a convent. And set each of them down very solemnly, you know, very solemnly, with their nose right against the the place where the spokes comes out. Says, now our friar here, the guy who hears the friar, since he's the head man of this whole operation, he is going to sit right in the center of the hub, and he is going to transmit this fort that has come to him from the churl in such a manner, if he does it carefully that you will get absolutely equal proportions of the noise, the smell, uh, and everything else coming down to the edge. Okay, that's pretty funny, too. Except that it's even funnier than you think. Because what is being parodied here is the idea of Pentecost. Pentecost is a great church, uh, Christian festival that uh, celebrates the descent of the Holy Spirit upon the church. And St. Francis, who thought that his order was going to be like a permanent Pentecost within the church, uh, deemed that the, general, the meeting, the annual meeting of the entire Franciscan order, would always take place on Pentecost Day. Part of the liturgy of Pentecost Sunday, and there are places in Europe where this still happens, is that they take a cartwheel, and put it up in the roof of the church and start spinning it, and it starts descending, uh, representing the Holy Ghost. Usually they put roses on there. Sometimes birds, you know, kind of fly, uh, fly out from there. Now, what is actually being, uh, what is actually being, uh, uh, uh talked, talked about? Um, look at the first of the passages. The description of Pentecost from the book of Acts. When the day of Pentecost was now come, they were all, all the, all the apostles, uh, were all uh, 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 in one place. And suddenly there came uh, from heaven the sound of a rushing mighty wind. Okay, this, in other words, turns out to be a Pentecostal fort. 
which is a very specialized Franciscan version uh, of this thing. Now, does this shock you? You know, I think, see, most modern critics see this thing and say, oh my God, he's so anti-clerical, he's so irreligious. This is for Chaucer, I think, what adds the real serious dimension to his uh, ecclesiastical satire. You have here a friar who pretends to be a spiritual exegete. Glossing is a glorious thing, certain, for letter slayeth, as we Clark is saying. Uh, but he doesn't even understand the spiritual meaning of a fork, what it really uh, tur- turns out. Now, the question that Chaucer is actually asking with regard to this diptych situation, you're going to see when you get to the Friar's Tale. Friar's Tale, naturally, is about a sumner. The sumner's Tale is about a friar. The, the Friar's Tale is going to be about a sumner. And, and that one ends by the friar saying, as we'll see, these sumners ought to repent. I know it's getting crowded inside you because you have a lady philosophy and you have a Boethia. You have an Adam and an Eve. You have an old man and a new man. But tuck in your belt, make a little room, because you have to have a sumner and a friar inside of you too. And the question that Chaucer is asking, what about if the sumner inside you that aspect of you that is literal and carnal and old, really sought to go to confession. And the only kind of confessor he could find is the kind of confessor that you have here uh, in this uh, tale. I mean, we hear all sorts of doom and gloom about the 14th century. They had the Hundred Years' War. They had the Black Death. Barbara Tuckman, you know, A Distant Mirror, was written... Uh, all, all, all about it. I, these things can't have been fun or can't have been funny. But I think that the real crisis of the 14th century in Europe was a spiritual crisis. It was a crisis about the authority of the church. This is the same period in which you have the breakdown of the papacy, uh, the, the so-called Babylonian captivity of the church when the king of France took the pope off to Avignon in the south of France. Then you got two people claiming to be pope and then three people claiming to be pope. A crisis of authority within the church that particularly focuses on the sacrament of penance. People in the Middle Ages had all sorts of problems that they couldn't solve, that we've been able to solve through technology and so on. But they had one solution that we have largely abandoned, and that is to say the idea of penance and forgiveness, of renewing, of starting over again, uh, picking up the pieces, all that kind of thing. And uh, uh, what Chaucer is really talking about, beneath the surface of this, you know, superficially ribald and filthy but incredibly funny story, I think is this uh, crisis. Now, I don't want you to have a crisis. I want you to finish your papers uh, very uh, equably. I want you to travel safely to some pleasant place and to return in the same manner, we need our the number of English majors is rapidly declining, and we can't afford to lose uh, any more uh, at all. And even if you're not an English major, I want you to travel.